The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. Michelle Miao's got a well-deserved break today, so I'm sitting in for her. I'm John Zipperer, Michelle's co-host on Tuesdays and the Vice President of Media and Editorial at San Francisco's Commonwealth Club of California. Today we're going to talk politics. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at commonwealthclub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome. Uh, thank you very much for coming out today. I'm, I'm James Taylor. Uh, good afternoon. and. Um, Thank you for coming to the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. Uh, you can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and Twitter, and on your YouTube channel. I am James Taylor, professor of politics and director of African American studies at the University of San Francisco. I teach African American studies also at uh, UC Berkeley, and your moderator for today's program. So today we have the pleasure of hosting David Brock, the founder of Media Matters, a politically progressive research an information center, and a lot of other things according to all of its enemies. Uh, Brock is also the author of many books, but he is here today to talk about his latest, Killing the Messenger, the right-wing plot to derail Hillary and hijack your government. Killing the Messenger is Brock's account of how far he sees the new right-wing elite are willing to go in their effort to control the media battle for over the 2016 election. Brock has an especially unique political perspective in his reporting because over a decade ago, he underwent a political transformation from being a self-described former right-wing hitman to becoming a Clinton enthusiast and Democratic operative. David offers his playbook for the engaged and informed citizen on how to cut through the media frenzy and see to each candidate's real truth. This is turning out to be quite an election season, so there's plenty to talk about. David Brock is a proud graduate of UC Berkeley across the Bay. So please join him, join me in welcoming him back to San Francisco. David Brock. Thank you very much. And I want to thank uh, the Commonwealth Club for having me here today and to Professor Taylor for facilitating a conversation which will follow uh, some remarks that I'm going to make. Um, I'm going to talk today about Hillary Clinton. Uh, that probably comes as no surprise uh, if you've uh, read about or read my new book, Killing the Messenger, or if you're familiar with the work we do in one of the groups I run, Correct the Record. You know that defending Hillary from false attacks is a full-time job, and it's one that I'm happy to do. Uh, Given that we're here in San Francisco, which is always a bellwether for progressive politics, and given that it's the eve of the first Democratic primary debate, I thought I'd focus on just one false attack in particular today, uh, which is the notion that Hillary is not a true progressive. When I hear that, I can't help but think back on all those years that conservatives worked so hard to convince us that Hillary was, in the words of Dick Armey, a Republican leader back in the early 1990s, a Marxist. Back then, I was working in the vast right-wing conspiracy myself, and I piled on, once writing that Hillary's political lineage could be traced back to veteran leftist organizer Saul Alinsky, a big boogeyman to conservatives. Well, when it comes to caricatures of Hillary, Republicans never let consistency stand in the way of a good smear. Today, Republicans are trying to turn Hillary into Mitt Romney. Now, Romney lost in 2012 because on the most important issue in that election, the economy, his policies offered nothing to the struggling middle class. But even if he had offered a more populist platform, nobody would have believed it because voters perceived Romney as personally lacking empathy for his fellow Americans. Romney could have come out for actual, literal socialism, and he still would have been the guy who said he liked to fire people, the guy who attacked 47% of Americans as takers living off the government, the guy with that car elevator in his house. 
So Republicans can see that Hillary is running to strengthen middle-class families, a platform that speaks not only to Democratic primary voters, but to the general electorate, and one that the GOP, four years later, still can't compete with. So their strategy is about disqualifying Hillary personally as a credible messenger for these popular ideas. They want us to think Hillary just can't be trusted as the vessel for progressive values. In the mangled language of former speaker-to-be Kevin McCarthy, <laughs> Republicans abused congressional power and squandered taxpayer money to make Hillary look untrustable. That's why there is also an organized, well-funded right-wing effort to dig for dirt on her family's philanthropic foundation, planting false claims in the press about Hillary doing favors for wealthy donors who have helped the Clinton Foundation fight disease and alleviate poverty. That's why there's a right-wing super PAC run by former aides to Mitt Romney attacking Hillary for her speaking fees, even though they were in line with the fees charged by other public figures, and many of them were donated to charity. They even tried to make hay of a rider in her speaker's contract, citing outrageous demands like having room temperature water available backstage. That's why, despite the fact that the Republicans want to repeal Dodd-Frank entirely, the Republicans improbably started attacking Hillary from the left, painting her as a tool of Wall Street. The Republican National Committee put out a supposedly damning video featuring Hillary's introduction of Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein at a global, Clinton Global Initiative annual meeting. And that's why the right suddenly fell madly head over heels in love with Senator Elizabeth Warren. That's right. In February of 2015, Karl Rove's American Crossroads Group ran a 30-second anti-Hillary web ad where the audio consisted entirely of a clip from one of Elizabeth Warren's speeches. After all, if they couldn't convince Senator Warren to challenge Hillary in real life, Republicans could set up an imaginary conflict between the two. We've even heard a lot of talk about political dynasties, as if Hillary was counting on inheriting the presidency from her husband, which is pretty brazen coming from a party that, until recently anyway, seemed intent on nominating a guy whose grandfather had been a member of Congress and whose father and brother had both been president. So what's behind this perverse attack on Hillary as being out of touch with America's families? Or the charge that the progressive policies Hillary espouses are not based in actual belief, but in craven political posturing? In Killing the Messenger, I tell you exactly what the Republican playbook against Hillary is. And one move in that playbook is doing everything they can to undermine Hillary's support among Democrats, raising doubts, dampening enthusiasm, driving a wedge. Now, before that campaign began, Republicans did a lot of chest pounding about how excited they were to run against Hillary. I hope you didn't believe a word of it because none of them did. The Republican Party today is disordered and disoriented, but Republicans know one thing. They don't want to face Hillary Clinton in next November's election. They know what Democrats know, that Hillary Clinton is the most formidable candidate we can nominate and the only candidate in either party with the clear political vision for stronger families and a stronger America and the know-how to get the job done. It's not just that Republicans are afraid Hillary will beat them next November, although they are. It's that they're afraid of Hillary implementing her vision as president. Now, some on the left may not yet believe that Hillary would be a truly transformative progressive president, but make no mistake, everyone on the right believes it, and it scares the hell out of them. That's why Republicans are salivating at the prospect of Hillary being bloodied in a Democratic primary. That's why there's such a clamor from the scaremongers on the right that Democrats need a plan B to Hillary. Well, anyone out there in the audience today who has a phone number for Michael Dukakis? The truth is, Republicans would love to see Democrats nominate someone without Hillary's depth of experience and record of achievement and someone who doesn't represent the kind of historic change she does. So you can be sure they're going to cause her as much grief as possible between now and the convention. 
Now, it would be silly to suggest that other candidates in the Democratic field are running as a favor to Republicans, even if that could be a political effect. There are some differences among the Democratic candidates. They're going to be debated starting tomorrow night, and voters can judge for themselves. But when I hear some progressives saying that Hillary is too timid in support of progressive priorities, I wonder if they may not be listening closely. For such a claim flies in the face of everything we know about what kind of president Hillary would be. The platform she's unveiled in the campaign, the records she's amassed throughout her career, the very story of her life, all of it shows Hillary to be proudly, even bravely, and authentically progressive. And despite what the media tells us, Hillary isn't moving in a progressive direction. She has been there all along. Hillary's the only candidate in this race on either side who's offering ambitious, specific, and realistic plans to raise Americans' income, make debt-free public college a reality for every kid in this country, provide paid sick leave for every worker, address climate change, combat the epidemic of sexual assault on campuses and mass incarceration, provide a fair and just path to citizenship for immigrants, continue the fight for full LGBT equality, address mental health and substance abuse issues, repair the Voting Rights Act, and finally deal with the ongoing tragedy of our kids being gunned down in their own schools by ending legal immunity for gun manufacturers and dealers. To be sure, our country is facing tough, seemingly intractable problems. And I know the pace of change can be frustrating. So Hillary's offering real plans that will work. As progressives, we all believe Wall Street must be reined in. Hillary's proposing new fees on the biggest banks, an end to short-term uh, profit focus, and prosecution for those who break the law. A real plan that can work. As progressives, we all want to get big money out of politics. Hillary's proposing to take executive actions to expose the dark doings of the greedy Koch brothers. A real plan that will work. Indeed, who do you think the Kochs fear in this election? It isn't going to be anybody up on that debate stage except Hillary Clinton. Hillary sided with workers in opposing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and she sided with environmentalists in opposing, opposing the Keystone Pipeline. Now, if any Democrats shrug off Hillary's advocacy for the kind of change we need, suggesting she doesn't really mean it, or this is just typical Clinton maneuvering, then I know for sure they've been influenced, without even knowing it, by the right's phony narrative. You know, one of the downsides about having the kind of iconic renown that Hillary enjoys is that everybody thinks they know you. Skeptics ought to take a little time to actually know Hillary. Look at the facts of Hillary's life, her career in public service, her record in elected office, and it's clear that she's no crony capitalist, she's no puppet of big banks. Tough talk about these issues is easy, but we never have to wonder whether Hillary will walk the walk in addition to talking the talk because she's been walking the walk from day one. She came from humble beginnings, raised in Park Ridge, Illinois, in a middle-class family. Her grandfather was a factory worker. Her father was a small businessman. Her mother, who had an abusive childhood, never got to go to college. She went to public school. She worked from the age of 13. Everything from supervising a park near her house to gutting salmon at a factory in Alaska. After law school, she turned down the big money firms. She went to work at the Children's Defense Fund. She was the first director of the legal aid clinic at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. When she and Bill got married in 1975, they had their wedding in their living room. Eventually, as Bill embarked on a career in politics, Hillary built her own career in law, but she never lost her focus on children and families. When he was elected governor and she became first lady of Arkansas, she led a task force to overhaul the state school system. When he was elected president and she became first lady of the United States, she championed the cause of children's health care. Elected to the Senate in 2000, Hillary was a strong progressive voice, especially when it came to family economic issues. She fought to raise incomes. She introduced the Paycheck Fairness Act. She was an original co-sponsor of the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. She voted repeatedly to protect and increase the minimum wage. She even wrote a bill to make sure Congress could only get a raise when minimum wage workers did. 
She fought to strengthen the social safety net. She reached across the aisle to extend emergency employment benefits. She worked to expand access to early childhood education for children from low-income families. She introduced legislation to expand the children's health insurance program that she helped create when she was first lady. And she, she fought to make the tax code more aggressive. She supported tax policies that required millionaires to pay their fair share. She opposed the 2001 Bush tax cut, the 2003 Bush tax cut, and she repeatedly voted against repealing the estate tax on millionaires. When it came to financial reform, Hillary was cracking down on Wall Street before it was cool. In 2008, she proposed a Financial Product Safety Commission to protect consumers, a plan inspired by a Harvard law professor named Elizabeth Warren. When Hillary ran for president that year, it was she who ran on a comprehensive plan to protect consumers from Wall Street abuses and ensure fair access to credit on reasonable terms. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. On foreign policy, Hillary is simply the only candidate in, in, on either, in either party running with a record to run on. And again, she left a progressive imprint. As Secretary of State, Hillary declared that, quote, gay rights are human rights and human rights are gay rights, becoming the first secretary to speak out against foreign laws that criminalize homosexuality. She fought to empower girls and women around the world. She took a global stance for reproductive choice. So Hillary isn't Saul Alinsky, though she did write her college honors paper about him. She isn't Elizabeth Warren, though she supported many of Warren's reforms. And I hope at this point it should go without saying, she's certainly not Mitt Romney. Hillary is the real progressive champion in this race. She's the strongest possible messenger for a progressive vision of a fair and secure economy that works for all Americans. And that's a message the Republicans will do anything to stop her from delivering. Hillary's the champion as well of a broad coalition in the Democratic Party, a party she spent three decades building many of those years holding Robert F. Kennedy's seat in the United States Senate. Maybe that's why a majority of self-described liberals favor Hillary in the Democratic primary. 
And maybe that's why enthusiasm for Hillary among her Democratic supporters is higher than that of any other Democrat in the field. So, I speak today as a Democratic organizer, but the truth is I became an admirer of Hillary's long before I was a proud progressive. In fact, I was an admirer of hers while I was still a conservative Republican. Twenty years ago, a right-wing publisher paid me a million dollars to write a takedown of Hillary Clinton just in time for the 1996 elections. So I spent two years tracing every step of her life, doing more than 100 interviews, reading every piece of paper I could find with her name on it. But I just couldn't pull off the hit job. I didn't have to spend the $70 million Ken Starr spent to find that all the charges against her, Whitewater, Travelgate, Filegate, you name it, were manufactured by political enemies. And not only that, much to my own surprise, and certainly to my professional detriment as a right-wing hitman, I wrote about a, a woman with a steadfast commitment to public service, a lifelong passion for children and families, and a deep well of personal integrity. I concluded then that Hillary had the potential to be an even more historically important figure than her husband. That was 20 years ago. And believe me, I wasn't planning anybody's presidential campaign. It's just that against every incentive I had to conclude otherwise, I saw those special qualities. I see them more than ever today, and as this campaign kicks into gear, so will millions of Americans. But don't let me tell you what to think. Watch the debates. See which candidate you believe has the smartest plans to solve our nation's critical problems. See which candidate, again and again, has chosen not to quit in the face of adversity because she believes in the project of empowering people to succeed. See which candidate is poised to break that last highest glass ceiling. Don't let the Republicans tell you what to think either. If your hesitation in supporting Hillary isn't about her message, but it's about Hillary as a messenger, ask yourself if you're falling into their trap. Ask yourself why the loudest speculation about Hillary's supposed problems with the left is coming from the right. Ask yourself why Karl Rove and the Republican National Committee are suddenly so concerned about the unchecked power of big banks. Ask yourself whether you really believe that Hillary is just another cynical politician, or whether it's the concerted effort to undermine her authenticity despite a lifetime of proof that is itself a cynical example of politics at its worst. And ask yourself why we are letting our foes tell us what to think about someone who has stood up for our issues and our values her entire life. We Democrats have an opportunity in 2016 to make history again. And I, for one, don't intend to let the Republicans bamboozle us into blowing it. Thank you. This is the Commonwealth Club of California program, and you have been listening to Media Matters founder David Brock about his new book, Killing the Messenger, the right-wing plot to derail Hillary Clinton and hijack your government. We'll now begin to talk with David uh, from a series of questions uh, from me and from, from the audience. And I, I guess I'll start, David, thank you for your comments. Um, and I'll just start off with this first question is, in your book, you claim that there is no evidence uh, that there's a Clinton fatigue and that it's affecting voters. How would you account for her recent decline in the poll? Sure. Uh, so about Clinton fatigue, what I say in the book is that um, we've, we've heard this a lot. You can go back to the 2000 election where uh, Al Gore and his advisors made that decision not to have President Clinton out on the campaign trail because they thought the country was sick of the Clintons, and that obviously was a mistake. Clinton fatigue was brought up in her Senate races. Uh, no polling ever showed that that's the case. Now, it is a Republican hope. I mean, I think that through all this scandal mongering, they hope that they can reignite some kind of fatigue and tire her out and tire people out on her. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, on her polling, yeah. So uh, I think a couple of different things. One, um, she, uh, in the last few months, the, the name Hillary Clinton has been on the front page of the New York Times next to allegations of criminal misconduct. Three times. Each of those stories, false, wrong, 
unraveled, retracted, apologized for. But the truth is not everybody has the time to sift through the iterations of the story once it gets corrected. And so there's a certain amount of damage done in the first iteration of the story. And where these stories are coming from, the Republican investigators on Capitol Hill in the Benghazi committee, uh, who had a brilliant strategy, I think, of manipulating a paper that is the gold standard of journalism and on its editorial page is liberal. Uh, so it's counterintuitive that that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of this, uh, and I'm not whining about the media, I'm just describing a reality. Uh, th- that is what happened. And you know, we in Media Matters, we looked at 30 days of, of just New York Times coverage. On every Clinton story, we coded 70% on email, 30% on everything else. So all the things I talked about in this talk that she is out there talking about that people actually care about is, is getting, it can't cut through the clutter. Right, right. And that's been, a, that's been a problem for her. Right, right. Thank you. Um, so then I guess I'll ask one of the questions from, from the audience. And it says, uh, would you comment on the current Wendy Davis Twitter war? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure of what's going on with Wendy Davis. I'm uh, not either. With, uh, <laughs> I, do they mean Davis down in, uh, in Kentucky? Let's, let's go to the next one. How can we get the public, um, the media, to understand and report the deeper narrative beginning with Lewis Powell, uh, progress, progressing through Citizens United, and threatening to overwhelm the 2016 election? Yeah, well, so that, the, that question is a reference to uh, a memo that Lewis Powell wrote before he went on the Supreme Court back in 1971 about uh, the, uh, what became a conservative effort to build a very powerful uh, propaganda machine for, for the conservatives. Uh, and you can trace that all the way from back then to, you know, in my book, uh, you know, I, I say in the 90s there was a vast right-wing conspiracy, but it was a ragtag operation, uh, had some money behind it, but it was a seat-of-the-pants operation compared to what we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. And so today it's, it is more like a, a vast right-wing conglomerate. Um, it's much better funded, more sophisticated. Uh, not as much in secret as it was in the 90s. Like people did not know the anti-Clinton conspiracy right. was going on by and large until you got to impeachment. Um, today, mo- the, K- the Koch brothers hide some of what they're doing, but most of it's right in front of our faces. And they have doubled and tripled down since Citizens United. Um, and uh, yeah, the more coverage of that, the better. We're, we are, we are uh, in one of my organizations, we do a lot of research on the Koch brothers. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, their business practices and the adverse impact those business practices have in local communities. Mm-hmm. And we try, to, we try to do what we can to get press coverage of that. Thank you. Um, so th- let me ask you this question. Do you think Hillary, or in what ways, do you think she will, and if so, in what ways might Hillary influence the Republican nominee and pick who they choose? That's a good question. Um, that came from me, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so you would think that the influence would be that they want, that the voters want to win, they want to beat Hillary, and that they would look at, uh, from that standpoint, they would look at electability in the general election. Mm-hmm. That's what you would think. That doesn't seem to be what's happening, um, which is a little hard to explain. So, in other words, earlier this year, uh, you know, our view was Jeb Bush was the big threat, the most formidable candidate. Is he still? Uh, you can't count him out, but he doesn't seem to be doing very well. Uh, you know, one of the big stories of, it's not necessarily cause and effect, but there's been so much press on Trump. I mean, Bush's candidacy has tanked during yeah. this period. Uh, and so, uh, so you, you, you don't know. Um, you know, are we in a 1964 situation where the Republicans are not in the mood to compromise and pick the most electable candidate and they want to go as hardcore right as possible. I don't think you can rule that out. Right. I don't think the, the top insurgent candidates are going to get there, the ones with no experience in government. But I think you could see Ted Cruz nominated by this party. Uh, and in, in that sense, uh, you know, I mean, then I think uh, Democrats would be very confident. Um, I don't think there's anything Hillary can do to affect any of this. Um, it's just, you know, the Republicans uh, have to make that decision when they, when they vote. 
uh, as to how how badly do they want to beat her, or do they want to go down in flames on some kind do, of? Do you imagine the Republicans? Might, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do you imagine yeah. the Republicans might choose a woman as a vice presidential nominee if if Polly Fiorina doesn't get the nomination herself? So to counterbalance that dimension in Hillary. Sure, that's possible. Um, you know, it it seems that Carly Fiorina, uh, one of the main reasons she's in this race and she has received money from uh, people who are backing other Republican candidates is to be out there attacking Hillary. Uh, so yeah, you, you could certainly see that. Great. Yeah. From the floor, does it bother you that President Obama isn't endorsing Hillary yet? No, I don't think so. Uh, I don't, you know, he has spoken very favorably uh, in interviews about her record and her contributions to this administration. And I think, you know, I think that's appropriate. And I would, I would leave it there for now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are several questions and I'll just put them all together in one. This one says, what led you to your shift from right wing operative to progressive? The other says, what drove you away from the GOP? Were you a conservative spin doctor? Obviously, you outlined that in the book, but yeah. I guess there's this general question about your conversion. I, I told you in the, in the green room, you know, I, when I read through your, your bio, it's sort of like I haven't seen as dramatic a transformation politically as Paul the Apostle, you know, <laughs> going from being the persecutor of the Christians in the church to becoming the most, you know, next to Christ, the most principal, <laughs> you know, producer of the religion. So mm, that's you are flattering. definitely in, in, <laughs> in rare air. So I'm wondering how you see yourself as a, as a political or media figure. Sure. So uh, to make a long story short, um, I, uh, I wrote a book, the first book I wrote, uh, back in 1993, uh, was a book that defended Clarence Thomas against Anita Hill's charges. This was after the hearing was over, and it was based on, uh, based on the accounts of his supporters, his friends, the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee gave me information that they didn't even put out in public. Uh, but I thought I was telling the truth in this book, so I wrote it, came out, Rush Limbaugh read it on the air for three days, it was a big success. That's how I got the contract to write the book on Hillary. But what had happened was um, there was a competing book uh, to the Anita Hill book written by Jane Mayer and Jill Abramson that came out about 18 months after mine. And it had some new facts in it that would lead you to conclude that Anita Hill, in fact, was telling the truth. So I went back to my sources and to his friends uh, and said, well, what about these things? Uh, and at that point, I think I was in the club enough that they said, basically, they never believed their own friend, and he did do these things. And so I, was, I take responsibility for it, but I was sold the bill of goods is the easiest way to put it. Um, and once I became aware of that, um, it made it very difficult to follow their line again. And that is what happened with the Hillary book, where it clearly was supposed to be something that it ended up not being. And that was why. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. So it wasn't, um, you know, it didn't wake up one day and say surprise, supply-side economics doesn't make any sense. It was not, it, it, which I, I realized later, but um, <laughs> I, uh, it was not an issue. It was, uh, it was what it was doing to my character. And I was felt like I am complicit in this. And then I have zero integrity and I can't do this anymore. And then, you know, then you realize you were lied to about some things and you start to think maybe you're lied to about everything. So this took years for it to But I imagine like Troopergate and all these things. I mean, I imagine Hillary and her her people had a real reticence towards you. So how does that, how do you end up in the room with Hillary that first time after all of these years of animosity? What's that moment like? So, yeah, in the new book, I write about this. So, I wrote a book called Blinded by the Right, uh, The Conscience of an Ex-Conservative, uh, that is a memoir, 
partly an expose on the bad guys, but it's also a confessional on my own effort to try to understand why I did what I did. And that came out in 2002. And the, de the Senate Democrats have a weekly lunch where they invite uh, a guest speaker. So I was invited by then Senator Daschle was the majority leader, and he had been given blinded by the right by Bill Clinton as a recommended thing to read. And so I went in there, uh, and I, I, you, know, you, you get five minutes, and then it's all question and answer. So I did my five minutes, and uh, Hillary Clinton was sitting directly opposite for me in the room in a big square. And so everyone, the thing is, they raised their hands to be recognized. And so it was very active, but she wasn't doing any, she wasn't raising her hand. So I, at some point, I became aware that she was not raising her hand, and I was wondering what she thought of what was going on. <laughs> uh, and then at the end, she put her hand up, and she got up, and she said, you know, listen, you guys, these are the three points David made, and just rattled them off better than I did, and basically endorsed the whole experience of the book. And that was my first interaction. Nice. Nice. Yeah. This is the Commonwealth Club of California program. And we are talking to Media Matters founder David Brock about his new book, Killing the Messenger, the right-wing plot to derail Hillary Clinton and hijack your government. Another question from the floor. Business Week on October 12, I believe it is, uh, has a cover page article on Steve Bannon entitled Right-Wing Conspirator, in which you were interviewed and stated uh, and, 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 and had a comment. Please explain, uh, from their point of view, the time uh, is the perfect body for the virus. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Of sure, yeah. So I, I said that um, uh, the New York Times was the perfect host body okay, for the anti-Clinton virus uh, because of what I said earlier, that it's, it, it's so counterintuitive, it's the last thing you would expect. But this is a really interesting article because they go down to a boiler room in Tallahassee, Florida that's funded through the Koch Brothers Network. Well, the government, these, these, these names I always love, the Government Accountability Initiative. Uh, and and uh, that's this book that came out a couple months ago called Clinton Cash, which I call Cook Cash. Uh, that, that, that book, which was an attack on the foundation, came out of this operation. And so they've got, they've got a few dozen people down there, 24-7, just trying to dig dirt on the Clinton's mm -hmm. finances with a focus on the foundation, and then feeding it out to the press. And as we saw in this Clinton cash book, there were a lot of allegations, but nothing ever proven. Okay, great. Yeah. This is a, a question. It says, as a former military officer with high-level security clearance, I can tell you with certainty, I would have been aggressively prosecuted if I had taken classified information and placed it on anything other than a secured government uh, server. Uh, this is a, uh, if Hillary is indicted in the same way General Petraeus or Sandy Berger were, what is our backup a game plan? Do you think an indictment and conviction of a, um, on major security violations is survivable? Can Hillary survive if they were to find some, something that really actually is illegal in these emails? There, there's nothing illegal in the emails. I mean, this is a dispute between different agencies ex post facto about what should or shouldn't be classified as they're releasing all these emails. And the fact is that um, in the Petraeus case, for example, uh, he, there was proven intent that he took this classified material and, and leaked it to someone or gave it to someone. Uh, her, none of her email uh, that some say now would be classified was ever marked that way. So I don't think you're going to have the kind of problem that's described there at all. Okay. Yeah. This, this is a much lighter question. It says, in your book, Blinded by the Right, you said you, got a, you had a dog. Do you still have a dog? So I have, a, yes. <laughs> yeah, I said I, when I fell out with the conservatives, I lost all my friends and I got a dog. Um, and uh, so uh, that dog did pass away a couple of years ago, but I have a new one. Nice, yeah. <laughs> nice. nice. A question about the, the, the media. Um, uh, were you surprised... Uh, by the Fox News Republican debate, uh, the, the quality of it in the first, the first debate they had, the questions, et cetera. Yes, I was. Um, you know, it's interesting with Fox because um, they, uh, you know, it's a successful business model. Um, so they have a bottom line and they're concerned with ratings. And 
that can drive them to cover candidates that uh, that are uh, that are driving ratings from the conservative base. In other words, candidates that the conservative base wants to see that are not necessarily, if you're running a brilliant political strategy, the people you'd pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So you go back to 11 and 12, you know, Michelle Bachman had her Fox moment in the sun and Rick Perry did. And, and so if you're Roger Ailes trying to mastermind the Republican victory in the election, you're in conflict with this idea of ratings. And so Trump and so anyway, uh, yeah, they did a, they did a good job that night. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they asked some tough questions, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and uh, I thought that was great. I thought that was great. Great, great. The Koch brothers, whom you devote an entire chapter to in your book, are now uh, out of a favorite candidate, giving Scott Walker's downtrodden exit from the 2016 field. <laughs> Where will they and their millions of dollars turn next? So um, they're going to spend a, a, at least a billion dollars, they've said, uh, on this next election, which is twice what they spent in 2012. Um, it seems that uh, they will stay out of the primaries, um, uh, ex- with the exception that um, they really don't want Trump, because one thing Trump is right about is they can't buy him. And that's, I think, a little bit of a source of his appeal, frankly. And Trump is right that the rest of the party, the rest of them will all be po- puppets of the Koch brothers. As long as somebody leads some kind of a stop Trump movement or Trump collapses himself, and I think the rest of the field, they've all been out to these Coke network, um, uh, you know, fancy conferences and gotten their blessing. Even Carly Fiorina, some of the insurgents, they're, they're all paying their respects to the Koch brothers. Um, the Koch brothers strategy, which they've done in these Senate races, is let the Republican primary play out and start the general election early. Mm-hmm. So they start the negative attack ads on the Democratic candidates while the Republican primary is going on. So by the time you know, that process is over and the Democrat can get in, they've already been branded for months in, in ways with a lot of false advertising. So we're waiting for the Cokes. They're going to dump you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of negative advertising on Hillary's head. Uh, we're waiting to, know, you know, to see when that will start. Um, but you know, I think the most important thing to know about the Cokes is that, um, uh, that uh, they lost the 2012 election. Uh, they spent a lot of money doing it. Uh, they, they analyzed why uh, things went wrong for them. Uh, they got up. They dusted themselves off. Um, they're doubling down. And, you know, we're doing everything we can to make sure they lose the 2016 election, too. But they're not going away. This is a, unless we really fix the system, this is a permanent problem. They are willing. They have got so much money. It's a bottomless treasure chest. And they are willing to take short-term losses for the long-term goal of, uh, of, of implementing this radical agenda and a total takeover of the Republican Party. Yeah, this question follows, follows up on that, and it says, is the bottom line that the oligarchy class does not want their influence on government lessened? Someone's asking that question. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the interesting thing about the Kochs is that um, uh, their first involvement in politics goes back to the late 1970s when one of the Koch subsidiaries got in trouble with the government uh, and was facing some fines. And uh, David Koch ran on the Libertarian Party ticket in 1980 to the right of Ronald Reagan. Uh, And they got less than 1% of the vote. And the Kochs decided to give up on the Libertarian Party and to start this long-term takeover of the Republican Party. And the truth is, They've gotten a lot of what they want already. If you look at the, ideologically, if yes. you look at the complexion of the Republican uh, Congress, for example, and just a few years ago that you could have been, you could have had a reasonable conversation on climate change with some Republicans. You can't do that now. Um, and so they really have a, they really have a chokehold. And, and, and it's not just the federal level. We, you know, we're working on the federal level, and so that's what I tend to focus on. But you look at the states and the destruction in these states. The Koch brothers had a 10-year strategy of taking over uh, state houses, governorships, uh, state legislatures. They are organized, and if they want to, they are organized down to local, local ballot initiatives. Um, so the radical experiment in these states, um, uh, 
uh, and all the terrible legislation in a place like North Carolina or Wisconsin, that's all coke driven as well. They gave $25 million to the United Negro College Fund recently so they can produce a, a group of young African-American yeah. conservatives. Sure. So no, they've, they've, got, they've got the Libre Initiative is a Latino-focused front yeah. group. They've got one focused on youth called Generation Opportunity. Yeah. yeah. So they're still right. doing a plan. Let me, let me, let me uh, read this. How can Republicans be accused of racism and misogyny when they have elevated a black man and a woman into the top three out of a field of 17? They are the most diverse. Well, I don't know that they're the most diverse, um, but they do have, uh, I guess, two of their three front-running candidates. Um, you know, I'm they not have saying Latinos, women, women, African-American. Sure. Uh, Look, there are lots of, uh, there are lots of women, um, you know, running for office or, or running uh, various advocacy groups who take positions that um, at least Democrats see as very much against women. Um, there, look at Clarence Thomas's voting record. Right. So there, there's, there's no real answer to this. Um, and there, there's also no blanket, you know, charge that everything is racist and sexist. But, you know, Carly Fiorina with her imaginary fetuses um, <laughs> is just, you know, uh, you know, she's not, she's not uh, advocating anything that I believe is in the best interest of women. So it's capable to be doing both at once, be a woman and, and, and have the opposite agenda. What's your opinion of the culture of apology, which seems to have become endemic in American politics? The pressure to force Hillary to publicly apologize for her emails is, is just the latest instance. Do you see any sort of undercurrent of sexism in trying to you know, force Hillary to humble herself to apologize for something she says she didn't do wrong? The reason I would say in part yes is that um, uh, on the email thing, there's just there's a double standard at work. So Colin Powell went on national television and said that he used a personal email account at the State Department, and he destroyed all of his email, both the work-related and the personal. So we're never going to see any of it. Um, uh, Mitt Romney, when he left the governor's mansion in Massachusetts, his aides uh, took computer hard drives and smashed them. Uh, Jeb Bush... Uh, Seven years later, in violation of Florida law, also personal email and a personal server, released just a portion of his email. So it's, there are a lot of email issues out there. Why is it sticking to Hillary? Um, and that, that is part of the answer. Um, you know, and then, of course, uh, there's the press wanting a pound of flesh. Uh, and so that's where a lot of these apologies come from. You say you're sorry. You got to do something. Uh, and then uh, she did it, and in talking to reporters who cover her in the few days after, well, suddenly they were ready to start to move on. So they, they got what they think they needed, uh, and uh, the combination of her accepting some responsibility for her role in this, and we're still waiting for the Republicans and, and the New York Times to, to accept their responsibility, then people are seeing the emails. Um, and the more that come out, they're totally benign. They're about wanting skim milk in my tea and saying to an aide, you know, pack warm socks for your trip. Uh, so the theory that she went and made this system so that she could hide the email, it, it never made any sense. Um, but as you see the email come out, it makes even less sense. And and, and, you know, people forget that when she was using the personal email account, she was communicating with everybody else in the government on their government accounts. So 90% of this, all her email was being archived in real time anyway. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. 
ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. So, anyway, yes, I think there's a double standard. <laughs> so, switching a little bit to Fox News, um, Angela Carason, uh, your vice president at Media Matters, recently said that the war against Fox is over. To a large extent, we won. I wonder, do you uh, consider uh, Media Matters as to having won in general or some major victories against Fox? What impact have you had on Fox? Yeah, so I think that, um, so in uh, 2009, when President Obama came in to office, it became clear in the Fox's own words that they were waging a war on him, that Roger Ailes called it the Alamo. They hired Glenn Beck. They were the voice of the opposition. This is nothing like what a news channel would be, and it certainly wasn't fair and balanced or anything like that. So we doubled down in our monitoring effort on Fox starting in 2009. We were part of uh, several groups that organized the advertiser boycott against Glenn Beck that got him pulled off the air. I think one we achieved two things. One, um, through the through the successful use of economic pressure, because uh, they're not going to respond on the grounds of journalistic ethics. But if they can feel some pain to their bottom line, you can change some of their behaviors. But the real strategy is. As I said earlier, it's a successful business model. You're not going to change it that much. What you can do is change how others view it. You can change how other media view it. When we started uh, on uh, Fox, Fox's case, um, all sorts of false and wrong stories from Fox, you'd see them two hours later on CNN. You do not see that phenomenon as much as you used to see it. Um, and so it's hard to measure, but I, I guess what I would say is there's a general recognition now that Fox isn't what it claims to be, that it's basically propaganda for the Republicans. And you know, shows like Jon Stewart and, and have, have, have pushed this into a, a kind of conventional wisdom now. So we know, at least we know what it is. I'm not saying you have to go away, but you can't misrepresent yourself. So if I have an undergraduate student uh, at the University of San Francisco where I teach that's interested in becoming the next David Brock, <laughs> what, what would you tell that student in terms of a track of, of what would you tell them in general that they need to do to prepare themselves? Well, don't get recruited into the conservative movement at a young age. <laughs> um, and then um, I would say, uh, you know, uh, a, a good background and a combination of history and journalism is what I had, even though I applied it maybe in the wrong direction for a while. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, sign up. Uh, we, our groups have three websites, Media Matters, American Bridge, Correct the Record, uh, and uh, you know, start to consume all this material. Um, we, you know, when we started out in 2004, there was no real progressive media. Now there's, like a, there's a very vigorous progressive media, so the conversation is, is uh, actually much more balanced than it was 10 or 12 years ago. So get informed and get active. We have seven minutes left. I'm wondering if you could sort of speculate. Uh, Jim Webb has gotten a lot of press today in the leadoff on tomorrow's debate. Uh, what is the relationship between Hillary and Jim Webb, if you know it? And could you see a Clinton-Webb ticket? I don't really know anything about their relationship, and I would seriously doubt it. I, if there was some press this morning, I didn't see it, but I don't think that would change, that would change anything, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, another word, association. Um, Barack Obama. Well, you know, against, uh, against a concerted Republican strategy of no and gridlock uh, that was instituted, you know, they met about it the night he was sworn in for president the first time. He's made major progressive achievements. And one of the reasons that I am for Hillary is that... Um, some of those achievements need to be cemented. Um, we, we, you know, every election they say it's the most important election, but this one uh, is really, really important. Um, uh, protecting the Supreme Court, protecting the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so, you know, a lot of progress uh, 
and and then uh, I think cementing that and and, and pressing forward. Who, who do you see as Hillary's Valerie Jarrett or David? Um, or, you know the uh, assistant to uh, Obama. Yeah, I don't know that there's one person. You know, one of the things uh, about the Clintons is that they've been in public life so long that they have a number of people around them to draw on. Uh, and there's not, there's not one particular person, um, uh, at least right now, uh, obviously when she becomes president, she'll make certain appointments, but there's not an, uh, an overall dominant figure. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see any interesting differences or overlaps between Jeb Bush and his father or brother and Hillary and her husband? Question. So, um, yeah. The well, other question is, why do these same fam two families dominate the field once again? So with Jeb Bush, um, seeing his uh, lack of ability uh, politically to, uh, to stand up to a Donald Trump, for example, I mean, someone is going to have to do that. Um, and He's also weak in his response. What I was reminded of was the wimp factor with his yeah, father. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's one comparison I would make. Um, I think that, um, you know, Hillary, it'll be interesting to see. Hillary is not a carbon copy of her husband. Mm -hmm. um, and we're in different times. So even, you know, policies that may have made sense uh, 20 years ago uh, are, may not be completely the right fit for this moment. So I think. Uh, I think there are some similarities in approach, but for example, on trade, she's always been somewhat more skeptical of these trade, trade deals than he has been. Uh, so she's not running for his third term or, uh, or President Obama's third term. And on the dynasty question, um, you know, it looks like the Republicans don't want Jeb. Now that, that could somehow change. He's still got a lot of money. Uh, and he could somehow come back. But, uh, you know, James Carville says the dogs don't want to eat the dog food. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's about right with Deb. So I don't think we're going to see that dynastic succession. And I just don't buy that, that somebody's wife constitutes a dynasty in the way that they're talking right. about. Right. So. so we have three minutes left. It's pretty much our last question. I'm sure. wondering, in your assessment, and, I, and this is for the audience too, I wonder, is, has there been a presidential candidate, more qualified, shovel-ready in over 200-plus years, as Hillary Clinton would be on day one, in Well, it's certainly hard to find one, and certainly in modern, more modern times. Uh, she is, you know, she's more than a resume, but when you look at the qualities of experience and leadership, uh, yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine who, uh, who could top that. And on top of it, um, incredibly resilient. I mean, everything has been thrown at this woman for since for over twenty years, uh, and um, and and vetted beyond. You know, everyone. You know, I don't know. If someone was earlier uh, say, "Well, what if something is found?" You know, I am telling you. Um, you know, two years ago, or two and a half years ago, when Hillary left the State Department, eight Republican super PACs and organizations were formed in the spring of 2013 to try to figure out how to damage her so she wouldn't run, okay? Uh, and I was in Arkansas giving a speech and the place was crawling with these researchers. Nothing to be found. So I think the story ends with the same in the 90s, how did the 90s end? President Clinton had sky-high approval ratings and Hillary Clinton went into the Senate. And I think that, that's the end of this story. We've reached the point of our program where there is time for only one question left, and that is to simply ask you, what, what's next for David Brock after 2016? Well, uh, we're going to, we've got, I, I've been involved in creating infrastructure that is permanent, that is not comes and goes with election cycles. It's a permanent, uh, permanent institutions to influence public opinion in a more progressive direction. And we're certainly going to need those institutions. Uh, if we have a democratic president, uh, there'll still be some uh, divided government, and uh, we'll still have uh, the unrelenting Koch brothers. Uh, and 
you know, we're going to need all sorts of work on media accountability around the new president's agenda. So I imagine I would just, you know, keep on, keep on doing what I'm doing. I'm very happy to be in. Thanks for listening. You can catch The Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network. 